Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, the Bucks have three healthy receivers for Saturday's game against the Texans. Unfortunately, none of them are named Mike Evans or Chris Godwin. The Lightning hosts Ottawa tonight. They came through that rough stretch against the Islanders, Panthers, Bruins, and Capitals 2-2. Two and two. We'll give you the latest on Nikita Kucherov's injury. And the Rays have been busy at the winter meetings, adding a slugger from Japan. But is the lineup a little too left-handed? And what is Stuart Sternberg's exit plan for 2028? We'll talk to Mark Topkin, uh, the Rays beat writer for the Tampa Bay Times, back from San Diego on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. So I uh, made it back uh, from Detroit and had Have a chance to talk yet? to well, let me tell you, I'm very grateful, first of all, that this uh, twenty more than 20,400-mile 20, uh, odyssey that uh, I got to join the Bucks on called the 2019 road trip season is over. Um, astoundingly, with all those miles, and you can't include London in this because that would technically was a home game, but but for the uh, in the miles you can, but for the record anyway, they went five and three on the road. When you go five and three on the road in the NFL, you should be a playoff team. You should win at least ten or twelve games. Absolutely. I mean, well, but this team's playing like a playoff team now, or it sure seems like it. I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sure. say they're playing against playoff competition, but that's true. Uh, you know the way Jameis is throwing the ball around and, and distributing it to many different players, and when you throw for four hundred and fifty yards for two straight weeks, you kind of have to spread the ball around. And, and now yeah. his, his receivers are falling like flies, too. That's unbelievable. The first guy in NFL history, that's what Bruce Arians said. He goes, when you start saying NFL history, that's kind of a big deal. Like, don't mm-hmm. don't just kind of skim over that. But the first guy to throw for 450-plus uh, two weeks in a row, Jameis Winston has done that. He leads the NFL in passing yardage. Um, you know, he reset his record with touchdowns uh, for the franchise with 30. He's only a couple behind Lamar Jackson at this point. And, um, you know, and then unfortunately, he has also 24 interceptions, which leaves the league. So, but he, all, uh, that's he threw the for downside. 450 in wins. It wasn't like they were behind. No. And he's having to, you know, just sling the ball over the field to get that 450. He's doing those well, as he, they've he, been ahead and in wins for the most part. He got behind. He did get behind the, the Indianapolis Colts. Well, they had Col- to yeah, the Colts, back they did it for twice. Yeah, he, he put them behind, actually, with his interceptions. He though. did. Yes. And these, these first. <laughs> It's driving. Let me just tell you, it's driving coaches nuts. These first, these first possession interceptions are just weird. Um, he's thrown. He's had five of them now uh, that have happened on the first possession of games. Three of them on this first pass attempt, and it happened again. He was late with a hot read and uh, you know got it picked off. But uh, he he threw the ball as well. I mean, just in terms of like accuracy, touch, seeing the field. You know, lofting it over running over linebackers to running backs in stride. They had some big chunk plays that first quarter. He's about as perfect as he can be without, of course, the interception. So technically, the ball never hit the ground. Uh, I think he was like ten of ten if you count the interception. But um, you know, he he his mechanics, uh, his accuracy, and all of this with sort of a 
a makeshift glove on his right hand that he never wears uh, that has a little bit of a little bit of padding. It's it's you know it's definitely something that they conjured up that Bobby Slater conjured up to give him just a little bit of protection on the thumb uh, because you know that thing is sore. Uh, but through the ball as beautifully as he's thrown it probably in five years, you know, up there against Detroit. Now, granted, the Lions are terrible uh, on on defense. They've given up a ton of yards and and points and everything throughout the, throughout the year. But that doesn't stop you from just absolutely gutting a team. And that's what Jameis did in the first quarter, the first half. Really, he threw for over three hundred yards in the first half. So he was very very accurate. Unfortunately for Jameis, and this is look, I'll give Bruce Arians credit for like falling on the sword here a little bit because he didn't have to, but, but it's becoming kind of obvious. All these receivers, particularly the top two on their team, and, and really they're the top two in the league, top two tandem, both Mike Evans now and then, of course, in the third quarter on Sunday, you saw Chris Godwin go down with hamstring injuries. You know, Also, Scotty Miller went down with one after he had his first touchdown catch of the game. And this has been a, a re- recurring theme, right, with the Bucks receivers and sometimes the DBs as well. And the only thing you can look at is I go back to training camp and even the OTAs, but certainly training camp when all these receivers told me, you know, as did the DBs, um, that they had never run this much in their lives. Like they ran so much because so much of his offense, Bruce Arians' offense, is vertical. And so you're running down the field on a lot of plays that, you know, obviously you don't always get the ball. There's only one football. Um, but but even at this time of year in December, you know, now Bruce backs off the veterans. Like he gives guys a lot of days off if you're, you know, DeMar Dotson or Indomitian Sue or Jason Pierre-Paul. Like he, he treats his veterans very, very well. But when he's practicing, like when he's out there practicing, man, he makes those guys go because – they're such a vertical offense, and he, and he feels like they have to see, you know, get the looks uh, with the quarterback, and uh, and I'll be damned if if these guys aren't all coming up pulling their hamstrings. And so, you know, when Mike Evans was out and it looked like he would miss the remainder of the season, that was a bad thing, right? Because you had Chris Godwin's going to have to take over, and somebody's got him to have to step up. And so Brashard Perriman goes out there, and he you know goes for three touchdowns, and. So you're like, okay, cool. So they, they still can function. They still have uh, guys that can beat man coverage. And, um, you know, 11 different receivers caught the ball. But, you know, when you have Brett Perriman, Justin Watson, Ishmael Hyman, and now Spencer Schnell, that, those are going to be your receivers against the Houston Texans on Saturday. Um, and Schnell, you might remember, or some people might remember from Illinois state. I watch them every Saturday, the Redbirds. Of course you do. I think college game day starts there just about every week. It seems like that's where they're at Illinois state. Um, but yeah, Schnell came in as an undrafted free agent. He played some in the preseason and had a, a big game, uh, against Pittsburgh Steelers first preseason game to go to Pittsburgh. And in about nine minutes, he puts up 107 yards the last nine minutes of the game. Uh, and then he, he got cut, but. You know, he's been around. They worked him out again last week just to see what kind of shape he's in. He's a little guy, you know. I mean, he's he's very much like a Scotty Miller, maybe not with that speed, but he's at least familiar with the offense, you know, and, and uh, you know, Ishmael Hyman was a guy that was in the AAF. He caught his first NFL pass the other day. It was a big one on third down for first down, which is one catch for three yards. Now he becomes their third receiver, and so you basically got Perriman and Watson. Now, that's not to say, as Bruce Arians, you know, told us on Monday that, look, 
we're going to have to adapt this offense. It's not going to be the same offense as if, you know, we can't have, have these guys ask them to do what Mike Evans and what Chris Godwin can do. So you'll have to come up with some game plan that, that highlights their strengths, but also is going to have to emphasize more of the tight ends, right, with O.J. Howard and Cam Brate. And I, th- I think we saw a little bit of that in the second half of that game, and they didn't really move the ball that consistently. And then also, you know, throwing the ball to the running backs. I mean, all this has to be part of the of the game plan because outside of Perriman, who had a really good, you know, couple of games, you just don't have anybody that's done it. You know, no one's no one's really got any catches on their resume. But tough position to be in, and yet, uh, you know, Houston is coming in here trying to clinch an AFC South division title. So you're going to get their best shot. They're coming off a big win. It's going to be an interesting game. I, I you know, the, as hot as Jameis Winston is right now, throwing the football, anything is possible. I think, though, while he made these other players look really good in the second half the other day, um, and, and I think he did what a good quarterback does, he elevated everybody around him. But you know, with not having Godwin or Evans, I mean, that is such a huge bite. Oh, and by the way, for all you fantasy players out there, tough luck, man. Wow. You're in the championship game this week, most most fantasy teams are, and you've lost Chris Godwin and or Mike Evans, two of the best fantasy receivers there are. I think I think you know Godwin was like fifth overall. I mean the guy has like thirteen hundred and something yards and nine touchdowns, right? So he's been pumping out a lot of hundred yard games. So yeah, tough break there for the fantasy footballers, but it's going to be, um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting if they can, you know, they've won four in a row, five out of six. Somehow they get by the Texans. And, again, they're not playing for playoffs, but they're playing to spoil some other people's playoffs. But they get by the Texans, and then I give them a really good shot against Atlanta. Although, did you see what Atlanta did? All they've done this year is go to New Orleans and to San Francisco and knocked off both of them, right, on the road in some uh, some, some dramatic fashion, especially on Sunday against the uh, 49ers. So, that's not a gimme game, even though the Bucks have beaten Atlanta once already. So you don't know. I mean, but they've got seven wins. They're back to 500. It's been a remarkable uh, comeback. You don't see many seasons where you have a four-game losing streak and a four-game winning streak in the same season. No, and I'm not a big believer that momentum carries over from year to year. Mm-hmm. But in the case of the Bucks, with a new coaching staff, right? And you know, this, I mean, and we've talked about this before too in Arizona. The Cardinals got off to a slow start in Arians' first season. Now, it wasn't quite did. as bad. It was like three and four, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And they were struggling. They were, Carson they won, Palmer they won, was struggling as yeah. a quarterback. And then they went on mm-hmm. a long winning streak or won a lot of the games going down the stretch. But went, went 10 and six. And yeah. he threw 22 interceptions that first year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I've heard other people say when they've talked to, to Arians and Carson Palmer and others that it took a half season for them to get the offense. Mm-hmm. And for Carson, who's probably a Hall of Fame quarterback, Mm-hmm. to to get a handle on the offense and, and kind of have a mastery of it to where they could then execute it to the way it's supposed to be executed. And you're seeing that with Jameis Winston now, that, you know, was the first half of the season, you know, realistic, or is this more what they are as a team? And I tend to think this is based on how young they are, particularly in the defensive secondary. You know, all these players now are, you know, now let's see, in your college seasons you play 10, 11, 12 games. Well, you're kind of through a whole season now. You're kind of graduating to the next year in, in the NFL, and, and that defensive secondary has gotten a lot better. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we know they can stop the run up front. Their pass rush, Shaq Barrett's been phenomenal. Um, you can't say enough about that guy. 16 and a half sacks through 14 games. It's incredible. What a year he's had. Yeah. And they can't, and as Bruce Darian said, we can't 
not <laughs> that won't go. That quote will be circled by the agent, but then he ain't going anywhere. Well, they're probably going to franchise or, or transition tag him, and you can do both this year because right. it's the last year of the CBA. As you guys discuss, you and Eduardo discussed last night on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know what this Bucks team has done. I, I think some of this momentum can carry over to next year because of the new offense, and as, you know, assuming Jameis is back, and I can't see why you wouldn't bring him back at this point. No, and. You know, the coaching staff, you assume, is back, and, and these players are all going to get another year of experience, and you hope you have another good draft year. Yeah, and the other thing that won't is likely to happen is you're not going to have that crazy road schedule, even though, again, they went 5-3, mm-hmm. and three, but there's still a residual effect, and we might be feeling some of that travel, um, you know, with, with the hamstring pulls as well. That's a lot of time on the airplane. That means a lot of dehydration. I mean, I know, you know, these guys follow that a lot, but uh, I think the running is probably what took its biggest toll, and Hopefully they can learn from that too. But it is it is Bruce Arians' first year coaching in Florida, not in Arizona where they were inside all the time. Um, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve for everybody. But you know, the other thing that, to uh, make mention uh, before we get to Mark Tom here is that you know this is also the first Bucks offense that has scored over 400 points in a season. And if you think that that's insignificant, I think I saw. John Romano had a column that said, like, there's been 212 teams or 212 times a team has gone over 400 points, um, you know, since the Bucks came into existence. And and the Bucks have never done it. So they've still got two more games left. It's a prolific scoring and, and statistical offense that they have. And, you know, that's a credit to Bruce Arians. It's also a credit to Byron Leftwich, who's a first-time play caller. And... Sure, he's had hiccups along the way, and I can go back to games and question some of his calls, especially on fourth down and, and you know different things like that. But you know, at the end of the day, as Stephen A. would say, would say, I, I mean, you got to give Leftwich a lot of credit for being a 39 year old former quarterback taking over Winston and and this offense and and having putting up those kind of numbers. It's been really impressive. Now, the defense is getting better. Sean Murphy Bunting is a baller. You know what's fun to do would be to uh, if you go side by side. Remember Rondi Barber's interception in Philadelphia that closed out the NFC Championship mm-hmm. game way back in '02, right? It was 2003 at that point in January. But um, the biggest play in Buccaneer history. Go back and watch that play, and then watch what Sean Murphy Bunting does. They're identical plays. He walks up to the line of scrimmage in the slot. He he sort of like is in position to blitz. The quarterback re- does you know reads it hot. In other words, he thinks he's coming. And so he's going to throw it out quick out on the perimeter uh, to the wide receiver, and he backs out and then jumps underneath the route and picks it off for a pick six. It's the same play. It's unbelievable how uncanny those two plays are. And for a rookie to see that on film, to know what's happening in the game because they've been running that stick route for a long time in that game on them, and to sort of bait him into that throw and then undercut it for a pick six in a critical situation. The score looks lopsided, but when you really look at it, they're on the thirty-yard line. They're driving for a a tying touchdown, um, you know, to to maybe send the game into overtime or or maybe even get the ball back and win it. This was going to be like a Giants-like collapse until he gets that pick six. So big play by Sean Murphy Bunting. So yeah, there could be some carryover, especially with the young secondary and everything else we got going on there. One final thing before we get to Mark again: uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, they've run through sort of a gauntlet here with the Islanders, the Panthers, the Bruins, the Capitals. They go 2-2, two and two, and they're going to play Ottawa tonight. But the big concern was Nikita Kucherov. I guess it's not as bad as it looked at initially, Steve? Well, he's day-to-day, so, I mean, mm-hmm. aren't we all really? But, yes. you know, I was anticipating, I mean, it could have been a broken foot, you know, mm-hmm. really bad with the ankle. 
for him to be day to day. And and I don't think he's going to play tonight. Although John Cooper didn't rule it out. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's a, that's a huge sigh of relief for lightning fans that even if he misses tonight and Thursday, and even, you know, all miss through Christmas, miss the next four games. And he's back after Christmas. That's a huge win. I mean, after when yeah. you saw the way he couldn't put weight on his ankle when he was leaving, he stayed mm. on the bench for a little bit and then went down the tunnel. But, you know, I was anticipating it was going to be at least a few weeks he was out. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not an expert or anything, but, you know, the way he took that, that shot, right, John Carlson, right off the, the ankle, kind of hit both of them, it looked like. But that's a huge sigh of relief. Yeah. Don't do that again, Nikita Kucherov. You are not hired to block shots. I don't care what position you find yourself in. Just get out of the way if you can. Yeah. Hop over the puck. The Lightning played five games in eight days. Uh, they went three mm-hmm. and two on those. Four of those were at home. I thought they played mm-hmm. pretty well overall. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought they played well against Washington. Um, the first goal was kind of something you don't see happen. Andre Palat kind of cuts in front of Jan Ruda, who then tries to pass it out from behind the net. It hits mm-hmm. off the skate. goes right to, uh, I believe it was Kuznetsov who scored it. And you're down one mm-hmm. nothing, and you're like, you know, you were playing well. You were taking the game to them, and, and that it, it's not a fluke goal. I mean, you made the mistake, but, yeah. you know, it's not a goal that happens all the time, you know. Right. And, and you know, Washington capitalized on it. But, I, you know, I didn't think they played bad against Washington. Of course, they, they beat Boston. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think they're playing pretty well. I, I, they're making some mistakes, and it seems like every mistake they make ends up in the back of their net. Ends up back of the net, yeah. But they're still, you know, right now they're in, uh, what, fifth place in the division. They're a point back of third. With games in hand on on both Toronto and Montreal, so um, you know they're still pl- they're playing well. Um, I think they're I think they're finding their game and who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think you know it's you know Lightning fan. This isn't last season, and you're not going to run away right. with the division like you did last year, and, and that's okay. Um, but I, I don't think there's I think they're doing fine. I think they're right where they need to be right now. They haven't gone on a run yet. And if they do that, then they'll kind of lock up where they need to be. And I think everything will be okay. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mark Topkin joins us now back from the winter meetings in San Diego. Mark, we haven't talked to you in what seems like forever because it's been about two months. So somehow we've uh, managed to talk about the Rays without you, which is weird. But uh, Let's let's go all the way in our wayback machine to sort of what the off season began with, with a, a fairly significant trade. The man of a thousand stairs, my favorite Rays player, Tommy Pham, is gone to the Padres, man, for Hunter Renfro and a something uh, slap something uh, prospect, Xavier Edwards. We can talk about uh, first of all beyond you know we can get into Hunter Renfro and why they were attracted to him. Certainly, the power is the big thing there. But Tommy Pham, I thought, was was a was more than just a, an on base percentage, uh, you know, occasional big fly guy. Um, he brought so much intensity and so much vibe. I think uh, to to sort of what the Rays accomplished last year. There's an intangible there, Mark, that uh, that they're going to miss, right? And there's definitely an intangible there, Rick. And and I, I mean, I I think yes, you're going to, you know, we're all going to say they're going to miss it. But I also, you know. 
and, and none of us are there behind closed doors. So a lot of this is what we sure. think and what we know and what we see and what we hear from other people. But, you know, there's also part of that intensity that maybe is a little rough for guys on a daily basis. So I don't want to say he was a negative. I think he definitely was a positive. A lot of the comments from race players mm-hmm. and staff were that he was a positive. But I, I don't think I want to make this out to be like when they traded Evan Longoria. This was a guy no, who was no. with him, you know, for a year and a couple months. He did bring an incredible intensity. He did bring some pretty good offense. He wasn't a good defensive player. He's a terrible base runner. Uh, mm-hmm. Our friend John Romano and I figured out one night he may have been the first player ever to go 20-20-20-20 because he had 20 homers, 20 steals, was thrown out on the bases 20 times and grounded into 20 double plays. So, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a certain part of Tommy Sam the Rays is definitely yes, but you know, there's also something that I, I don't know. Maybe we all kind of, you know, fell into the narrative about it. But I think that can be tough for guys on an everyday basis. So I don't want to diminish what he did. He did a lot. I kind of get it. I also understand where they came from, you know, money-wise. They wanted to create a little bit of flexibility in their payroll. They weren't going to trade Charlie Morton, even though maybe you could make a sense in the most cold-hearted way. He'd be the most logical guy to trade. But they signed him, you know, to a two-year deal with the promise of, you know, come finish your career at home, which is what he wanted to do, and that's why he signed with them, Liz and Bradenton. I don't know if you're going to trade Blake Snell now after you just signed his extension, and he's coming up a down year. You're not going to get dollar for dollar for him. So that kind of left, in my mind, in my opinion, not what they're saying, but my opinion, Kevin Kiermaier or Tommy Pham, of their two other big money guys, Tommy Pham was going to go to about eight and a half in arbitration, uh, played hurt a little bit last year. So, I, I mean, I know it was disappointing to people, but I kind of get it when you – put it in the blender of how the Rays do things. I think we all kind of get it. So I, I understand why they did it. The return was curious. I mean, Hunter Renfro is a guy who is a big, brawny power hitter, yet he's a really good defensive player. He's a better defensive player than Tommy Pham. He was a finalist for the Gold Glove last year in the National League, which is the same league that Corey Dickerson won one in the year before. So we'll put an asterisk on that. But uh, it was an interesting move. Uh, and I think it's also part of how they're trying to reshape their offense and, and trying to get a little bit more run production. Tommy Pham, I know one of the last things he said at the end of the season was, I've got to find a way to hit more home runs. Well, the Rays found a way for him to hit more home runs. They traded him for Hunter Renfro. Yeah, and Renfro's not going to be maybe the on-base guy, to say the least, but uh, man, he, he does possess an awful lot of power, uh, which would certainly hurt them, help them, uh, a guy that can hit you know well over uh, perhaps 30 home runs or something. They also got a pretty good prospect. Maybe Blake Snell doesn't necessarily initially knew him all that well because I understand some t-shirts are being made with the nickname that he pinned on Xavier Edwards but tell me about Edwards anyway yeah this I feel sorry for this kid because there, there literally is nothing else that he will do in his baseball career that will allow him to shed the nickname that I'm not sure if we can say on your podcast or not uh slap something something uh, that Blake mm-hmm. Snell Blake Snell used it's a slang phrase for people that aren't very good at their job. Blake Snell, look, it came from the right place. I mean, he he knew he shouldn't have said it. He was, you know, I don't get these kids today, Rick, but they play video <laughs> games and they stream themselves playing video games live and people watch them playing video games live. So while he was doing all that, he's on a hot mic. He made his reaction to the trade when he saw it pop up on his phone. And, and this kid is now going to forever be known as that. There are T-shirts, a couple of former Rays. Or Ryan Stanek was one of them, put a tweet out uh, this week with, Hey, Blake Snell. And I, I think it's pretty safe bet that the Rays have already ordered a bunch of these T-shirts or having some similar ones made uh, for Blake Snell to be greeted with in spring training. So David Edwards is a, he's a very young, very talented kid. He uh, grew up in the Fort Lauderdale area. 
um, was a first-round pick by the Padres. He's got a lot of ability. It's a hit uh, everywhere he's been. He's hit over 300 to this point. He's still at the A-ball level, though, so he's another one of these guys. You know, He's not Wander Franco, but he's going to join that second tier of really good, highly rated prospects that the Rays have. Uh, a stash of them, and in fact, a lot of them play the middle infield. Sometimes they move those guys to center field. Sometimes those guys don't pan out. But if they're going to make any kind of bigger trade at some point this offseason, that stash of middle infield prospects certainly looks interesting. Yeah, for sure it, it does. And 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 speaking of another addition, of course, this one comes from Japan, uh, and uh, another power hitter, a guy that's uh, pretty good defensively. But Yoshitomo, let me see if I get this right. Susugo, is that right? Susugo. Sutsugo. There's a song. Okay. Sutsugo. There's a song, and I expect you to learn that song for next time we talk. I want to hear the <laughs> for sure. rendition of the, the Sutsugo song. But... He's not a very good defender. I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, he played left field in Japan. The Rays are going to look at him at third base a little bit, which speaks to Yandy Diaz as the other guy playing third. So I guess it's not that hard necessary to beat out Yandy Diaz. But lefty hitter, hit a lot of home runs in Japan. He's averaged 30-plus homers uh, over the last five years, a five-time All-Star. Uh, there's not a ton of position players that come over from Japan and have impact. I mean, after Ichiro and Hideki Matsui, you, you probably you know have a little bit of a pause in your recall of, of you know, who's next on that list. Uh, mm-hmm. But the Rays are investing for them a fair amount of money, $12 million over two years, plus two and a half uh, posting fee they have to pay to his team uh, in Japan. So they're investing almost $15 million in getting this guy, and they think he's going to hit a lot of home runs. I mean, there's some interesting comparisons out there, and, you know, we all know what they can be worth ultimately. But, you know, if he's anywhere close to the Kyle Schwarber comparison, the lefty hitter, you know, with a lot of muscle and can hit a lot of home runs and hit them pretty far. I think the Rays would be very happy with that and get two years out of them. And, like, he's only 28 years old. So, you know, I think this was a situation where he liked the Rays and maybe took their deal over some other teams dealing some West Coast teams, which usually appeal more to the Japanese players, for the opportunity to play here and also the opportunity to be a free agent again in two years. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's another big addition, and, and I think that uh, the one thing you wrote about, Mark, and this is true, I mean, you you look at FAM, and then Travis Darno goes to the Mets for enormous money, as did Avisel Garcia now uh, going to the uh, Milwaukee Brewers two years, $20 million. I mean, that's, that's enormous, but what they've lost is some right-handed hitters, right? No doubt, no doubt, and that's, that's part of this restructuring of the offense, and, you know, Renfro gives you some of the power, that they lost, but he, you don't get the on-base percentage. Sutugo has a tremendous on-base percentage, but he's a lefty hitter, so a little bit of a trade-off there. I think they're still going to go out and get another right-handed hitter. I, I don't. I think they had hopes earlier in the off-season of getting Avisel Garcia back, and then once uh, they got a feel for you know what he was looking for and what he was ultimately able to get on the market, uh, that's a lot of money. I mean, the Ra- the Rays are the land of opportunity, Rick. I mean, guys come to them. We've seen this over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. They're kind of off the scrap heap, so to speak, and they get a ton of money. They just make a ton of money. Uh, and, you know, the latest one is Avisel Garcia, as we said. Uh, we saw Travis Darno. I mean, don't forget how they picked him up, what the terms were when they picked him up. So these guys have come here, played here for the Rays, done really well for the Rays, and then they go and cash in somewhere else. 
Yeah, that's been the pattern. And, of course, I think they're probably uh, uh, still just getting started here in the hot stove league and, and a lot of a lot of guys to add. It's hard to question what they do, though, Mark. I mean, this team won 97 games last year, took the Houston Astros to game five, and we know what the Astros are all about, so maybe they maybe they should have won that one as well. Um, but, uh, Is there yeah, a thing banging I, on a garbage can I hear? Wait, hang on a <laughs> well, second. Well... Look, if I'm Tyler Glasnow and the first six guys get on and they're sitting on curveballs when I'm throwing 101, I might be a little questioning something. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, certainly certainly there was whistles and banging and all kinds of weird stuff going on down there in Houston. Yeah, no anyway. doubt. No doubt. And how, how that unfolds is going to be one of, you know, whether it's, by, I don't think it's going to be by the end of the year. I think it's going to be by the start of spring training. But that's going to be the baseball story of the year for 2020. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and it could be before the first pitch is thrown. Yeah, it could be huge. All right, let's talk about your conversation with uh, Ray's principal owner, Stuart Sternberg. Of course, it seems like everybody else has given up maybe on this uh, this idea of Montreal and Tampa Bay sharing the Rays. Um, certainly St. Petersburg's mayor has. Nonetheless, Sternberg seems persistent about this, and so just tell me what the latest is, and, and maybe he, uh, he seemed to have go, gone a little bit further and hinted more at a, at a timetable when he, when he would need to uh, to know where he's playing. Where are we at with this plan? Yeah, I mean, if anything, since uh, St. Pete Mayor Rick Kreisman came out a couple weeks ago and said he was not going to allow them any type of early exit from their trop lease, and then the Rays basically said, okay, we'll honor that, I think Steve Sternberg has doubled down. I mean, he is mm-hmm. he is adamant that this plan is going to work. Now the timetable would be to start it in the 2028 season, which would be after the current uh, lease agreement ends at the trop. I think, I think the Rays internally still think if they can work this out and there's a lot to be worked out but if they could work mm. it out that maybe it could still happen a little bit sooner i mean if, mm-hmm. like, let's look at it from their perspective if they get everything else they got worked out and if they got a new stadium built in the tampa bay area for open air for 600 million dollars such a bargain half price of what a dome stadium would cost if everything was in place maybe they can go back to whoever is the mayor then because it won't be Rick Reisman and say, hey, can we leave a year or two early? So their focus is on doing this. Their focus for now is on 2028. But the interesting part is, and this keeps getting pushed up a little bit. I mean, we used to think probably by 2023, the Rays had to know what was happening in 2028. Now Stu Sternberg is saying they need to know probably by 2022 what's going to happen in 2028. And in the next 12 months, probably need to know where they stand on Montreal, and thus the two stadiums. Now, a stadium being built in Montreal, I think they're assuming the partners in Montreal are going to head the, you know, take the lead on that. I think that makes sense. But I, I, I don't know, Rick. And you, you run in a in a higher circle of people than I do around Tampa Bay. Do you sense that people, someone, somehow, when there was so little momentum toward building a new full-time stadium, at least on the Tampa side, when they had that opportunity, and it seemed so far from actually happening, and whoever part of it you know wherever they were supposed to meet they obviously weren't close enough to meet they're going to find a way to build a 600 million dollar open air stadium somewhere in st peter tampa I, I don't know that still seems like a major stumbling block to this plan uh the other part of the conversation with steve sternberg was equally interesting i said would you then just look if that doesn't happen would you just move the team to montreal he said i don't think montreal is a good full-time market which probably didn't go over well up there and then he said, most interesting of all is that he would probably be more likely to sell the team to someone who, if it's going to have, if it's going to have to move, he'd be more likely to sell the team than move it himself, which is also an interesting uh, turn of events in this. But, you know, he still said, and I think probably what stuck with people the most when I said it, it's still highly unlikely that you would find a full-time home in either Tampa or St. Pete. 
and he said it was less than highly unlikely. It had actually gone wow. backwards since we last talked. Yeah, I didn't like that uh, comment in particular if I'm a Braves fan. And the other thing, you know, I mean, Tampa has a new mayor. I don't know if he's able to, to uh, if anybody has an interest in, in, you know, sort of reigniting talks in Hillsborough County. Um, as far as him selling to another owner that would then move it uh, because he would not, Mark, why not sell it if there were such people in the Tampa Bay area that would be interested in, in owning it here? Um, you know, again, if you're going to put a, if you're going to sell the team potentially for someone else to move it, why not sell it to some some potentially if there was such a thing, local owners or or you know an ownership group that would be interested in keeping it in Tampa Bay? Well, I. I, I... I, this is me kind of interpreting what he said, but I think his point was if it's going to be sold to someone from Nashville or someone from Portland, in other gotcha. words, if it's going to move there, he would just assume let someone from there buy it, then be the guy. I got who you. Okay. So I, gotcha. I do think rather, rather than I, he I do, own a team somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think ultimately, and, and, and again, this is, I guess probably some people would say I would be naive or Pollyanna ish for bringing this up, but, you know, if there were a local owner or a local group and someone did want to pay him what was going to be an excessive price, I mean, the Kansas City Royals just sold for a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think he'd, I guess he'd listen. I mean, but is that person going to solve the stadium problem? I don't think someone who's a really smart business person is going to come in and buy the Tampa Bay Rays at a very high price, going market right, price. And then say, I'm just going to leave him in the trap. Everything's going to be fine. Because the same problems that the Rays have under Stu Sternberg's ownership, they have under anyone else's ownership as well, I think. Well, that's a similar argument that there was, Mark. Um, and, and you're right. And with all the things that, that baseball has in the Tampa Bay Area and the lack of attendance and a successful team and all that. But there are some parallels to you know the Glazers buying it from the Culver House Trust years ago. They had Hulahan Stadium or Tampa Stadium. No one could make the, the, the money work there. Um, and, and, you know, yet, um, they gave Tampa Bay, the Glazers did a chance to, to keep their team. And, and of course we know, you know, they found a way with a referendum that you could probably never get past now to build a stadium on Del Mabry. So, uh, it does happen. And, and I guess the best you can hope for is that, you know, as the rubber meets the road here, that something materializes as we get closer to a, a deadline real or perceived, but, uh, it's unfortunate. It's uh, I don't I don't know where this is headed. I don't know if the Montreal Tampa plan is really viable, but uh, I do know there will be baseball at the Trop next year for a team that's coming off ninety seven wins and a pretty good playoff series against the Houston Astros. So I think Rays fans will be excited about that, especially following them all the way through the uh, the hot stove league and of course uh, through the winter and back. And you'll be at spring training before you know it, Mark. Don't kid yourself. So. Um, it's, it's, Thanks for it's the coming, reminder, man. pal. Yeah, it's coming, man. Hey, maybe on your, get those on your last... way back from Miami, you could pull off into Port Charlotte and get, get <laughs> this thing ready for me. I'd be happy to do that. You need me to spruce <laughs> up the condo for you down there or something? It's a nice it's a nice stopping point for me since I'll be driving back and forth probably about 17 times during the course of one week. It's a little short ride. Anyway, uh, good you're back. Good you're back on this podcast and uh, enjoy your off season as much as you can. He is Mark Tompkin of the Tampa Bay Times Covers the Rays. You can read him on TampaBay.com. Thanks, Mark. All right, man. Anytime. Boy, still a lot for the Rays to do this offseason. It's going to be fun to see how they build on that 97 win year from a year ago. The Lightning will host Ottawa tonight. That game, of course, is at Emily Arena as they continue this uh, sort of 
pretty long homestand overall. The Bucs begin preparations for their game against the Houston Texans. We'll get more about Chris Godwin and the health of some of their receivers and talk to Jameis Winston. Chris Torello will join us from Spectrum Sports 360 on Bay News 9. Always good to catch up with him. We'll be doing a mailbag this week, so remember to get your questions in. You can do that by reaching us on Twitter at SportsDayTB. You can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. For Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.